to the Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Sword and the Trowel. I don't know what number it is. We got a lot. 12? 13? 15. 13. Hannah's nodding. 13. 13. Hannah's the keeper of the numbers. That's it, man. We have been making our way through the statement on social justice and the gospel. We come today to Article 12 on race and ethnicity. This is a, a very hot topic, one that's very important. We want to think well on it. Tom, do you want to read that affirmation for us? Yeah, I'll read it, and then let's have a discussion about it. The affirmation says, We affirm God made all people from one man though people often can be distinguished by different ethnicities and nationalities. They are ontological equals before God in both creation and redemption. Race is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that often has been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. All that is good, honest, just, and beautiful in various ethnic backgrounds and experiences can be celebrated as the fruit of God's grace. All sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetrated between and upon ethnic groups by others, are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. So, what's wrong with that statement? I don't know anything wrong with it. That's why I signed it. Yeah, well... I don't know anything wrong with it either. That's why I signed it and helped frame it. So we're, we're, we're making a distinction here between race and ethnicity. Very much related terms, and yet we speak of race as a social construct while uh, acknowledging that uh, ethnicities, nationalities are more um, sound terms rooted in objective truth. Yeah, the scripture obviously uses ethne as a representation of distinguishing between people in groups. Um, Today, we typically use language like ethnicity and race interchangeably. However, in dialogue with brothers who stand on the other side of this question uh, regarding how justice is to be carried out and promoted by Christians in our world, uh, I tried to be very sensitive and listening to them and learning from them. And so uh, several of my brothers on that side kept pushing the issue that race is a social construct. And they uh, read some of the material that was sent to me and recommended to me to uh, see how historically uh, race was utilized in order to promote superiority and inferiority, typically, and as is demonstrably true in our own nation's history, mm-hmm. uh, with whites and blacks that blacks are a race that are inferior and that is inferior and that whites participate in a race that is superior now there's no doubt that type of of wicked sinful white supremacist thinking has existed and still exists in uh, various sectors today and we would agree that that is an abomination so by affirming article 12 on race and ethnicity um we, we're acknowledging two things. We're not trying to ignore two things. Number one, uh, in the history of our nation, there has been this categorization of people um, along uh, lines of their skin color and claiming that one is inferior and one is superior. And we abominate that Yep. and abominate any residue of it existing today. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the language actually is very clear on this. 
that uh, it, this social construct has often been used to classify groups of people in terms of inferiority and superiority. And then goes on, all sinful actions and their results, including evils perpetu- uh, perpetuated or perpetrated between good between and upon ethnic groups by others, are to be confessed as sinful, repented of, and repudiated. So it's very clear. And so at least what's going on in my head when I uh, read race is not a biblical category, but rather a social construct that often has been used to uh, classify these people in these ways. I'd say, can we, can we not make future decisions based on that social construct? And of course, there's a lot, uh, a lot involved in the word based on that when I make that sentence. But when I read uh, Delgado's book on critical race theory, the, uh, Delgado claims that critical race theorists agree with this statement that uh, race is a social construct, but then go on to um, make bad plans on trying to fix the problem of racism Mm -hmm. uh, based on this social construct, based on black-white. So one of the things that they do is they claim that uh, black people have... um, a greater competency to speak to the issue of racism. Yeah. And that's, I think we've talked about this before, but that's where I I just can't follow. I can't go there because I'm not going to, yes, if one has, one group has been oppressed, well, then we should listen. We should sympathize. We should seek to understand. But if you're going to claim that there's actually a, a competency an ability to identify sin, the sin of racism, uh, to understand it, to speak to what it means to repent of that sin, to trust in Christ, and you're going you're gonna to say, well, because of your skin color, because of this social construct, you are more competent to um, speak to that and address it. That's when I think you've, you're doing the same thing. You're taking the social construct, and you're building off of that, making really bad decisions. Yeah, and I agree with you completely, and yet that is being done uh, repeatedly. I'm just as, as recently as the last couple of days in the uh, Twitterverse, uh, one of the most outspoken uh, social justice advocates uh, among Christians, he's a student at Southern Seminary, Kyle J. Howard, came out and he said, I really wish my, my white brothers would ask a person of color, is this racist or is this uh, uh, colonial imperialism before just coming out and saying this is not racist and this is not uh, imperialism. And, and it's just, in his mind, it's very clear that because he's a person of color, he understands racism. Mm. And those who, do, who are not his color don't, uh, which is a kind of uh, what Vody Balkum calls ethnic Gnosticism or a point of view epistemology that says because I have this point of view, I stand on this ground, then I can speak truth and understand truth in a way that you cannot because you're not occupying the same space. Right. And perhaps the, the line to walk there is to say if, if he had said, I wish that they would talk to one of uh, their black brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about uh, and listen to them about sufferings they've experienced as one who lives as a, a black person in the wake of American race-based slavery. Mm-hmm. Well, then, Absolutely. amen, let's sure. listen. But it's the idea of competency being imported um, and attributed to one's skin color. Yeah, and exclusivity in that competence. Yeah, absolutely. And that shouldn't, we, we shouldn't um, grant competency 
to uh, someone's skin color if they're black. We shouldn't grant competency to one's skin color if they're white. We right. just need to we, we not we don't we shouldn't be using race as a basis for competency exactly and that doesn't mean that race doesn't matter or or that ethnicities don't matter i mean obviously there are distinctions between people and uh, we don't do well to ignore them or pretend they're not there uh, sickle cell anemia for example is a problem among uh, black people it is not a problem among white people well i want a medical doctor to understand that distinction especially if i'm a black person I want him to, to know that these things need to be looked at more carefully in the blood work that is done so that something that uh, has been demonstrated to be a problem in my ethnic racial makeup, he can be more alert to try to catch and help me treat. Very good. You want me to read the denial? Yes. We deny that Christians should segregate themselves into racial groups or regard racial identity above or even equal to their identity in Christ. We deny that any divisions between people groups from an unstated attitude of superiority to an overt spirit of resentment have any legitimate place in the fellowship of the redeemed. We reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. Well, there's a lot in that uh, denial, isn't there? So it would be wrong for uh, us to say, hey, we want to plant a white church. And so we're going to plant a church that's just for white people. I mean, that would be contrary to the gospel. That would be a denial of what the Bible says, and we should abominate that. And that's an example of uh, segregating themselves, the first sentence of the denial. So it's important to say uh, this is not denying that Christians um, should gather themselves into racial groups. So if there was sure. an African-American fellowship yeah. at a certain gathering, uh, that's not being addressed. The word segregate means to uh, separate entirely, say we're going to meet in Others can't join. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, and, and that's been done historically where blacks have been excluded uh, from uh, white uh, events and white uh, gatherings, and that's wrong. It, it would be equally wrong in the other direction. So to say we're going to plant a black church when you know, no whites are allowed in this, no other ethnicities or races are allowed in this. It, it, again, it does not mean that uh, you won't find opportunity to identify with people who share certain traits, including race or ethnicity, uh, with you. But for a Christian, our most important identity, fundamental to all our identity, is who we are in union with Jesus Christ. So though I have a variety of, of uh, mixes in my own racial uh, background, my primary identity is as a follower of Jesus Christ, one who's been born again by the Spirit of God and brought in union with Christ. So I have more in common with a person who looks nothing like me, racially, uh, ethnic, ethnically, ethnically, that's the word. Ethnically, that's, that's a new, that's a new one. Word. I like that one. Yeah, well, that's part of my st strategy here on this program <laughs> is to introduce new words. Uh, ethnically, I yeah, we have some commonalities, dissimilarities, but what we have in Christ trumps all of that. And that's the danger that I see happening today is that there are Christians who have certain racial makeups who feel like 
they, uh, their racial makeup is more important than their Christian identity. Now, I don't think anybody's saying that, but the way some of the uh, positions being advocated, actions being taken suggests that. Yeah, when somebody says, well, hey, you know, nobody's doing this. Why are you writing this? Because nobody's doing this. Well, um, you know, there's, there's a difference uh, between someone writing a position paper on a thing um, and someone starting to believe these things in the heart, you know, they, yeah. they haven't fostered, you know, festered long enough to, uh, to be written about it, the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not. Well, get there. me started on the Evangelical Theological Society. We'll have to address that uh, down the road a little bit. This, I, I see uh, critical race theory again here. Delgado's book, he talks about uh, intersectionality and anti essentialism. The idea is that no person has a single, easily stated, unitary identity. Rather, everyone has potentially conflicting, overlapping identities, loyalties, and allegiances. That's critical race theory. In in the words of Delgado, one of their own adherents and key leaders, well, this statement in the statement on social justice in the gospel is saying, no, our, we have a key identity. It is in Christ. This is our identity. It trumps all other identities. It trumps all other allegiances. We mm. are not anti-essentialists. We are essentialists. We are those who have claimed Christ and Christ has claimed us. And so let's not go back to trying to uh, divvy us up and begin to think, well, I'm I'm a part of this group and part of that group and part of that group. And all of these kind of have the same kind of play. No, yeah. they don't. Yeah. I, I tell you, the last sentence on this denial, I think, may be as important as anything else in terms of uh, just practical pastoral wisdom. While we are to weep with those who weep, we deny that a person's feelings of offense or oppression necessarily prove that someone else is guilty of sinful behaviors, oppression, or prejudice. So, Jared, you've hurt my feelings. What you did has offended me because last night you went home, went to bed, and I was left here and not having anybody to talk to. So you've offended me. Brother, you need to repent. Because I went to sleep? Yeah, because you went home and went to bed. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Here, this is the problem. This is the problem. Today, offense is the trump card. If I say you hurt my feelings, then uh, automatically I'm given the high ground. And Christians shouldn't think that way. Jesus offended a lot of people, and yet Jesus never sinned. Spurgeon is preaching a sermon one time on election, and I, I forget the exact sermon, but he says, does this offend you? Then be ye offended even more. Hmm. And sometimes that's the right attitude. And the reason this is going on is because we've all got our own law. Yeah. Uh, by what standard is exactly. the question that exactly. we always have to be asking. So uh, I remember you told me a while back, I don't know how many years back this was, but you said, you know, one of the reasons I um, love the law of God is because I see people dropping shoulds on people all the time without biblical warrant. Yeah. When you see people saying, you should do this, you should do this, you offended me because you should have done this. Well, you need Bible underneath. Absolutely. Because of the erosion of the law of God, we have this problem that's addressed in the last sentence there. Given all of that impulse and direction, we want to be wary of uh, perhaps an overreaction. So if somebody came to you and said, uh, Tom, I've got something I want to talk to you about. You know, um, you did something the other day that 
I found offensive. <laughs> so? You, would you start gearing up right there? Which commandment did I break? You tell me right now. Yeah, no, 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 no. You no, still no. want to lend an ear and realize, you know what, I have blind spots, and sure. I might really have transgressed the law of God. Absolutely. And if, surely if the, if the call is to love people the way Christ is loved, then I'm falling short in some, um, some degree. Right. I should just... We should all beware of um, pretending like if I gave you $10 instead of $50 that I've uh, created some great offense or I'm guilty of some great offense against you. Exactly, exactly. And this is you know, coming back to the idea of justice, giving each one his due uh, under God. So let's use my example. So if this morning I say, hey, Jared, you know, I, you really offended me, man. You hurt my feelings. I was left here all alone. And you had no sense that there was any obligation on your part, expectation on my part, for you to hang around and talk to me, then for you to apologize to me and say, will you forgive me? You're not helping me. Nope. You are hurting me. You're injuring me. You are fostering me being crippled the rest of my life emotionally. And you're setting me up to emotionally blackmail somebody else. Yeah. So don't do that to me. The second to last sentence... We'd probably talk about this. This would be, uh, I could see people latching on to this and saying, are you saying that the uh, the Jewish people shouldn't view themselves as having been oppressed by Nazi Germany? They were, they should view themselves. So what are we saying and not saying when we say we reject any teaching that encourages racial groups to view themselves as privileged oppressors or entitled victims of oppression. That because of my racial identity, I therefore can be one or the other. I mean, have were, were Jews oppressed under Nazi Germany? Without a doubt. Are there lasting implications of that? Without a doubt. Those things need to be owned. But for uh, any person who is a Jew today to say, man, I'm a part of an oppressed minority, uh, well, I can point out, as we all could, uh, people of Jewish descent or Jewish identity who would not fit into the category of being oppressed whatsoever. And it is equally wrong for a person to say, well, because I'm this race, you know, I'm superior. Because I'm not that race, then, you know, I'm above uh, the folks of that race. In our book portion today, we want to talk about a book by Richard Weaver. It's called Ideas Have Consequences. Yeah, he wrote that when you were what, like a minus 40 years old? Minus a lot of years old. Richard Weaver was an American scholar, a revered conservative and professor of English and rhetoric at the University of Chicago. And I was put onto this book probably a couple years ago and was struck by it in a number of ways. I don't know that he's a Christian or anything like that. I have no reason to believe he, he is. But he he's concerned with objective truth. And the he charts the implications of losing a sense of objective truth. He mm-hmm. talks about the metaphysical dream. That's how he, he words it. One of his quotes early on in the book, uh, he says, the issue ultimately involved is whether there is a source of truth higher than and independent of man. 
and the answer to the question is decisive for one's view of the nature and destiny of humankind. I can't help but connect this back to uh, critical theory and what mm-hmm. we see in German idealism, this denial of objective truth, and then, well, just this um, this um, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Synthesis, this idea that we're just going to kind of find a way to move through the world with social constructs. We don't have objective Mm -hmm. truth, so we'll just kind of formulate our own ideas. Yeah, Foster wrote this book in the middle of the last century, and I think he actually died in the 60s, uh, somewhere along those lines. I was encouraged to read this book by an English uh, professor who was a member of our church for a while, probably 30 years ago, and it was so clarifying and helpful to me. His, his recognition that if we don't have some kind of transcendental standard, some transcendent standard mm-hmm. that uh, we all can agree upon and operate out of, then it, it basically does come back to the might makes right. And whoever has the greatest uh, opportunity to influence and convince people of what they are seeing, what they ought to, how they ought to respond to what they're seeing, is the one who will control uh, the way that we experience the world. That's right. Uh, just three things that jumped out to me. He says three things that occur in the wake of denying objective truth. If you want to play that game, and again, I'm sure Christians are going to say we believe in objective truth, but we're seeing a lot of funky stuff going on in the culture <laughs> right now. That is a denial of objective truth, and I think what's happening is Christians are trying to trying to take something they see in that system that exists in the culture, the belief structure of the culture that denies objective truth. They're trying to come in kind of on the back end and grab something there that looks kind of like Jesus and then say, oh, yeah, see, like we're this, we're connected, Mm -hmm. we're involved in social justice, we're involved in caring for the poor, whatever it might be. Uh, But what's happening is you're entering into a system that outright uh, denies objective truth, has no objective standard. So, Three things that happen in the wake of that. Number one, uh, Weaver says that you you lose the ability to distinguish, uh, especially along lines of hierarchy. So if there is no objective truth, then, well, you know, how do you choose who gets first place, who gets yeah. second place? Everybody gets a trophy. Who gets third place? Everybody gets a trophy. So we see that going on right now uh, in our society. The second thing that happens is there's fragmentation and then obsession over over the parts. So there is no um, whole, but we just break down into the particulars. He mentions that uh, it, there, there were societies in which if there were financial decisions that were coming up, they would go and talk to those in the theology department because they, they knew in that day that finances are related to theology. There's a whole, and you deal with the particulars in light of the whole. Well, that's lost upon us. We just live in a, a terribly fragmented society. Uh, the third and final one I'll address here is um, egotism or individualism. So we're just we're living one of the most individualistic societies uh, ever to have existed on planet Earth, and that's come because of this breakdown in objective truth. So it's kind of about me. Selfie it was the word of the year five, <laughs> six years ago. Um, so this is a timely book to kind of get us moving in the right direction, at least have us think from, again, someone who's not necessarily a believer in our Lord, maybe he is, maybe he's not, 
but he understands what happens when objective truth goes. Yeah, he's got this great chapter called The Great Stereopticon, in which he describes how uh, society constructs this almost like a, a movie and places, sees all of us in the theater. And it is telling us what we are to see, what we are to think about what we're seeing, has laugh tracks in it so we know when to laugh, and um, melodramatic music mm. so we know when to feel certain emotions. Let me just read to you. Don't get me started uh, on the great stereo. It's, it's awesome. And you can you imagine, he wrote this, what, in 1948 or 50 or something, something like, that. like that? Can you imagine what he would say today about social media and the new media and all the stuff coming to us over uh, Wi-Fi? We're watching the telly screen. <laughs> he says, the vested interests of our age, which from all kinds of motives desire to maintain traditional values or to get new values set up in their place, have constructed a wonderful machine, which we shall call the great stereopticon. It is the function of this machine to project selected pictures of life in the hope that what is seen will be imitated. All of us of the West, who are within the long reach of technology, are sitting in the audience. We are told the time to laugh, the time to cry, and signs are not wanting that the audience grows ever more responsive to its cues. Mm. Getting discipled. The, the, the message is, is uh, when you're watching a movie or, you know, listen to the or a Macy's Day Parade, you're being, or the Macy's Day Parade where, you know, two ladies kiss. Um, and then, you know, the, the crazy kickback to that i saw people online like goodness christians it's just a parade oh it's just a parade that is a that is a human being who has failed to grasp the significance of the great stereopticon absolutely it's not just a parade no no it's your children being discipled in queer theory absolutely it's thursday school thursday school i've heard of this instead of sunday school oh thursday school it's thursday school very nice it could be monday school tuesday school so so all of the messages when you when you watch a some kind of movie on Netflix, some little show, and it's got some you know little guy on there, and he's a homosexual, and he's in some relationship, and he starts pulling on your heartstrings. You start liking the guy, you start you start rooting, hoping that he gets married mm-hmm. to some guy, and then you realize what happened. Here? Mm-hmm. I've been discipled. Yeah. That's what's happened. Yeah. But if you're a listener to the Sword and the Trial podcast, we are the anti stereopticon. We are our own stereopticon. You have joined the resistance. We've got discipleship messages going out for Jesus right now. We're the monopticon. Monocon. Monopticon. We're the monopticon. See there? Strategery, bro. Strategery. Uh, what would we find in the dictionary if we opened up to that word you just used? Well, if I get to write the dictionary, we'll find a picture of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. You're not speaking inerrant words on the Founders podcast, are you? No, but I'm... Pope Tom? I'm speaking with the reality that there is an inerrant word. Mm, Grounded on the truth. Might make some mistakes, but we're grounded on that word. Why why don't we bring this section to a close? We we (laughs) are full supporters of the metaphysical dream. It's called the Bible. It's called Jesus. In our third section here, we are talking about different commands given in Scripture, different commands, imperatives, you know, indications, recommendations of things that God tells us to do or implies that we do in the Scripture. And today we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Which really isn't a command. It's something I want to talk about, but it's something that Tom is adamant I'm, about not being a command. I'm happy to talk about it. I just want to talk about it as it is, not as what it's not. 
I'm let's let's say it's an implied command that God delivered to Adam that we have something we could learn from. Why don't we call it an indicative statement about what God must have obviously commanded to Adam? Uh, <laughs> I think we uh, agreed. <laughs> okay, all right. Genesis 2:15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What's significant about that indicative statement? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it shows us that God has a purpose for creation and especially for the creation of his own image bearers. And that uh, the significance of that purpose is that he intends for us as his image bearers to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it to take what was present in the garden, all that was good that God had created, and to see that spread throughout all of the world, to keep it and to, uh, to work it. That was our responsibility. It continues to be our responsibility, though we are now east of the garden. There's a lot of ways we could go here. We could talk about covenant of works kind of stuff. I want to avoid that a little bit right now. But well, why'd you bring it up? Well, you know, just because indicate, just indicate that people, if they want to get into that, it's guess a lot where of they can we go. could talk about. Guess what book they could get? Getting the Garden Right. Bam. By Richard Barcelos. Available at founders.org. Now you know why I talked about it. So, <laughs> that was really good, That was man. good, smooth. I hadn't read as many marketing books smooth. as you had. You know what I'm doing when I mention something like that? I'm working and keeping, I'm working and keeping God's garden. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're getting it right. Genesis 2.15 reminds us that this is God's world. It was his garden. The whole world is also his world. He sent us out into it to work. And we're supposed to work even before the fall. You are you telling me that um, you know I I work gets hard sometimes. It just feels like it could be this total fruit of the fall. I'm telling you, work is not a four letter word. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, work is good. Work is ordained by God. God works. He worked. He labored in those six days to create the whole world, and uh, not in the way that uh, caused him to get tired, that he needed to rest because he was weary, uh, but in the sense that he's a creator. And so he's called us, bearing his image, to work, and that's a right and good thing for people. This attitude that we live for the weekends and that you know work is something we just have to do to put food on the table, that is mm. a wrong way of thinking it's for a Christian. It's ingrained deep, too. Oh, yeah. In our American culture, it's, you know, how do you get out of work? When can you retire? How can you get rich quick? When we work, who do we work for, according to Genesis 2.15? Well, we work for God. And Paul makes this clear, too, when he says that we're not to do our labor uh, simply for our masters, but as to the Lord in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. That's right. And when we work, with whose stuff are we working? With God's stuff. Yeah, it's a stewardship thing. Absolutely. It's God's garden. God put Adam in the garden. It's God's world. He's put us in the world. Uh, he's told us to work. He's told us to keep his stuff. So no matter what we're doing, as we're pastors of Grace Baptist Church here, we try to encourage this flock to go out and to live for Christ. That yeah. means when they're engaging in work, whatever they're using, whatever they're taking care of, whatever they're if they're raising up children, if they're raising up a business, if they're raising up a home, uh, if they're doing some kind of maintenance work, whatever it is they're doing, um, they're 
using God's stuff, caring for God's world, and should do that in a way that brings him glory. Absolutely. You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org. Thank you.